This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Jason Burns and Access Church in Lakeland, Florida. For more information, visit access.tv. Today, as we kick off this Palm Sunday, we're wrapping up a series called Dream Church. And really, what we've been saying in the series is this, church was not a man's idea. A pastor didn't come up with church. It wasn't a theologian or a scholar's idea. Church was God's idea. And if God dreamed up church, then we should try to do church the way God dreams when God dreams of church. Today, I'm wrapping up this message series with a message that I think is going to step all up on your toes. And so I hope you're ready for this. But as we approach Easter, let's really dig in together and see what God has for us. About four years ago, my little daughter Ella and I were driving together. She was maybe three or four years old at the time. And Ella and I, when we're in the car together, we play games. The games are like rank these three things from favorite to least favorite. Popcorn, pretzels, candy. Like just, and then we play the game and we just do, we're always doing something. And we had reached kind of a lull in the game. And Ella goes, Dad, can I tell you something? I said, sure, baby, what? What, what do you want to tell me? She goes, um, this is weird, but I can't wait to die. And I said, who have you been hanging out with? What are you talking about? No. No, 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 we can't, we can't die. You got the best life ever. Why would you want? She goes, no, I love life. She goes, I just can't wait to go to heaven. I said, why do you say that? And I guess in church at Access Kids, they were talking about heaven that week and how amazing heaven was going to be. And so because of heaven, we don't have to fear death. And she was so excited about it that she wanted to go now. And I was like, well, like it'll still be there in like 90 or 100 years. Let's just tap the brakes a little bit. You ever been around someone who can't wait to get to heaven? You ever been around someone who's facing the reality of death? And it's like for them, heaven doesn't feel like someday. Heaven feels like a reality for here and now. Some years ago, my wife and I were up in Charlotte visiting her grandparents. And her grandfather was driving me around one day, and he did that thing that old people who have lived in a city for a long time do. He's driving around and goes, See that bank right there? That used to be an orange field. And, and see that school over there? There used to be hundreds of cows out there. You, you know people like this, right? They've been here for so long. They want to tell you what happened back then. And so he's telling me all these things. That used to be Orange Field, and that used to be a school. I mean, that used to be a, a cow pasture, and that's where we're going to be buried someday. And that right there, there used to be a pond there. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? He goes, yeah, like right over there. We're going to be buried there. It's like, we already bought it. It's like, but you're still alive. He goes, I know, I know, I know, but we just can't wait. For the day. I don't know if you've ever experienced this before, but heaven for some people just seems like such a reality, seems so near. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you've sat in a funeral service and it feels like you're staring down the barrel of eternity, but heaven is such a beautiful picture. And here's the funny thing about heaven. The Bible doesn't actually talk about heaven a lot. It talks about it some. Jesus doesn't talk about heaven a lot. He talks about it some. But one of my favorite places to study heaven is in the book of Revelation chapter 21. John sees this picture of heaven and he describes the gates of the walls of the city and how they're covered in beautiful gems and pure gold. It says the streets are covered in gold so pure that it's transparent. You can see through it. But earlier in the chapter, Revelation 21, he gives us this interesting view of heaven. Here's what he says. He's talking about God and he says, God, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I think this is an interesting way to describe heaven because instead of telling us what heaven is like, he tells us what it's not like. It would be like you getting a phone call from a friend who lives in another country who says, um, I've heard 
about this amazing place you have called Chick-fil-A. Tell me about it. And you're like, well, it's not Taco Bell. And it's not McDonald's, because in those places there is death, mourning, crying, or pain, right? It's not those. He describes it by what it's not. And I love the picture because the picture of what it's not feels a lot like what earth is. Death, mourning, crying, and pain. And he calls this the old order, which is the way things used to be. And heaven's not going to be anything like this. And as a follower of Jesus, one of our missions is to make earth a lot more like heaven. When Access was starting some 15 or 16 years ago, I used to use this little four-word phrase. I said, our mission is to bring up there, down here, to bring heaven to earth. This year, I had this idea for a different phrase. On the back of your shirts, it says, here for good. But in the bottom right corner, it says, until Lakeland looks like heaven. Today, I want to talk about what does it look like for Lakeland to look like heaven, What does it look like for this city, for this area, for this region of the country to become a place that people come to from around the world because they're like, I don't know what it is, but there's just something different about that place. It feels different. Now, if you're like, um, Jason, I don't know who came up with this. Did you hire a marketing agency? Did you hire someone who is creative with words to come up with this? I, I need you to get this. This wasn't our idea. Jesus himself gave us this idea. In the book of Matthew, we have one of two accounts of Jesus teaching us what is called the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a prayer. It's really more of a template for how to pray. I love it in the book of Luke. Luke records that Jesus was praying and his disciples were watching him. And they were so amazed by the way he prayed that they said, Lord, like, what is that? Teach us how to do that. Teach us to pray. And then Jesus teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you grew up going to church, you probably know this. If you're not a church person, Possibly at some point you've heard someone pray this. It starts very simply. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then the next verse is so powerful. It's so loaded and yet we just say it and we blow right past it, but I wanna sit here for a moment. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Essentially Jesus is saying, God, I want your will to be done in Lakeland, on earth, as it is in heaven. Here's the problem for us. The problem is we don't live in a kingdom. We don't think in terms of kingdoms. We live in a democracy. We vote for people, and if we don't like who wins, we vote in four years and hope that they don't win again. That's how it works. That's, that's how a democracy works. But were you like me a few months ago when Queen Elizabeth finally died and, and I say finally because, like, I thought she was out going live, to out, outlive all of us. I thought she was going to live to 247, you know. And I was glued to the TV because of all the pomp and circumstance. That is a kingdom. That is a kingdom. Like, here's the definition of a kingdom. A kingdom is a country, state, or territory ruled by a king or a queen. So when the queen died, it was interesting to me to watch the transfer of power. They changed the national anthem from God save the queen to God save the king. I I swear I thought she was going to outlive her son just to spite him. That's what I thought was going to happen. And it was interesting to watch all the pomp and circumstance, all the, the beauty and splendor of that transition of power. And it was interesting because in some ways it almost felt like a picture of what the kingdom of God is. This is a beautiful definition. This is the dictionary definition. Here's my definition for a kingdom. A kingdom is wherever the will of a king is carried out. 
over a hundred times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke alone, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is used. It's obvious that this is a theme to Jesus. This matters. And if anyone would understand what the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God looks like, wouldn't it be the one who's from there? A kingdom is any place where the will of a king is done. And if we're going to be the kind of people who care about what he cares about, we need to know what his will is. Let me give you a beautiful side note. We read the verse, Matthew 6.10, from the New International Version. I want to read it to you from the King James Version. King James is kind of the old school. It's more Shakespearean sounding. Here's what it says in the KJV. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And pay attention to this preposition. In earth. Not on earth. In earth as it is in heaven. And again, if you grew up going to church, you probably always say on. But in King James it says in. Why does this matter? Genesis chapter 2 says that Adam looked around and no suitable helper was found for him. And so God wanted to form the man. I, mean, I, backed up, I messed that up. God wanted to form the man before Eve. And it says God took the earth, the dirt, and he formed it together and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Adam was created from dirt or from earth. Have you ever heard the colloquialism from dust to dust? Have you heard this before? It's because there is this reminder that we are formed from the dirt. We are formed from earth. So here's what this verse means. We are to pray, God, I want your kingdom come, and I want your will to be done in me. And as it happens in me, the only natural response is that it spreads from me to my immediate circle, my family, my close friends. And it keeps spreading to my colleagues, my coworkers, to my friends, to my relationships, to my social media, to my city to my world. This is how the kingdom of God expands. It expands when it starts in us. So listen to me. If Lakeland is ever going to look like heaven, we need to get on the same page about some stuff. If Lakeland's ever going to become the kind of city that, that heaven looks like and feels like, we, we got some work to do. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three simple ideas today. And what we're going to do with these three ideas is we're going to form a really awkward terrible sentence, but it really forms what I believe a church that's on mission to see our city look like heaven looks like. To start us, Mark chapter 6, Jesus has been traveling, teaching, and he comes back to his hometown, and I want you to see something weird that happens. Mark chapter 6 verse 1 says, Jesus left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So Jesus is just teaching in what was like a church service back then. People that heard him said, where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him? Well, what are these remarkable miracles he is performing? And if, this, if the questions ended there, he'd be like, they're amazed by him. And then they cut his legs out from underneath him by dishonoring him. Isn't this the carpenter? Like, isn't it just the, the boy who grew up working in his father's wood shop? Isn't this just the carpenter? It goes on, isn't this Mary's son and the brothers of James and Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus is home. These people know him. They saw him as a little boy. They knew him growing up as Mary and Joseph's son. Jesus responded to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives 
and in his own home. And then the next verse haunts me. The next verse is an insight into the way that Jesus seems to move. It's an insight in the way that we can partner with him to actually make a difference. It says about Jesus that he could not do any miracles there. Not that he chose not to. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Here's the reason. He was amazed. But this is not a good amazed. This is a bad one. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, here's what happens. Jesus comes home, everybody knows him, and the things that we know we treat as common, the things we treat as common ultimately suffer from dishonor. Jesus is dishonored in his own home, and here's the result. He could not do any miracles there. Not that he chose not to. Not that he's like, I want to, but nah, psych. No, no. He could not do Miracles. Where there is no honor, miracles stop happening. So let me say it to you like this. If we understand what restrains Jesus, we'll understand what restrains us. If we can begin to understand that there was something that happened to Jesus that stopped him from moving the way he wanted to do, if we can understand that, then we can understand what it means to not do that so he has permission to move and do miracles in our midst. Told you we're going to write a weird sentence. Here's part one. We are, number one, high honor people. We're high honor. What does this mean? Well, honor, in my opinion, is the beginning of every miracle. It's the breeding ground of every miracle. We are to honor God and we are to honor others. Here's a definition for honor. Honor is valuable, precious, weighty, such as gold. It's when we add value and worth to someone. Dishonor, conversely, is to devalue or to treat something valuable as common. Now, this is a big deal. Honor matters. This is the reason, by the way, that the first 15 to 20 minutes every service we spend worshiping God. Why? Because we are ascribing to him honor. Worship. Here's another word for worship. Ready? Worthship. It's not just singing songs. It's we're saying, you are worthy of my praise. Today we sang, Lamb of God, worthy is the Lamb of God. Honor and worth go hand in hand with each other. It's saying, God, you are worthy of my praise. What happens when we honor God in worship? He moves. Miracles happen. Lives are changed. I, I never want us to dishonor God and then to be like, well, God's not showing up. That would be on us. This is gonna be a place of high honor towards God. That's number one. But number two, we are to be known as people who honor each other. Let me say this to you. The last three years, in my humble opinion, the church has taken a terrible black eye for its dishonor. It's like we'd rather make a point on social media than we would to make a difference in the lives of someone else. Everybody's got a different opinion. I get it, I got lots of opinions. But at the end of the day, it's only the opinion of scripture that ultimately matters to me. So what do we do? We honor other people. We call out the best in them. If you were to walk out the doors today, it'd be easy to find dirt everywhere. Dirt's readily available. It's much harder to find gold. People are the same way. It's easy to find reasons to dishonor people. It's a joy to find reasons to honor them. How incredible would it be if our church was known, not for what we're against, but what we're for. I'll say it like this. We wanna be known for what we're for, 
not what we're against. We wanna be people who raise a bar of a standard so high that people have to raise their life up to meet it instead of setting the standard so low by saying all the stuff we're against. You know what happens when you set a low standard? People make themselves razor thin to somehow slide up underneath it, to miss it altogether. Let's be people who raise the bar. High honor, high love. We see the worth in people. We call out the best in people. In a world full of critics and cynics and haters, we're full of love and honor to our world around us. You with me? Number one, we're high honor. Number two, we're hope dealing. This is a fun one to me because I don't have to explain how devoid the world is of hope. This week, one day, I was working and I had one of those days where I just went from appointment to appointment to appointment, and then the day ended, and I was kind of rushing out the door to go to my car to get my kids. And as I was rushing out the door, one of the ladies at the office said, be sure to hug those babies of your ex- yours extra tight tonight. And I said, why? And I love hugging my kids, don't get me wrong, but she's like, squeeze them extra tight. And I was like, why? She goes, did you not see what happened in Nashville? And I said, no, I didn't. And I said, I, I gotta go. I walked to my car, sat in my car, started the car, and I refreshed the news on my phone and I saw the news of the shooting at the school in Tennessee. And I was already running a minute late to get my kids. This made me a couple minutes late because I had to gather my composure. Because one of the kids is a pastor's kid. It's not my kid, but it felt, felt heavy, felt hope. Less. And you don't have to go very far to find a reason to feel hopeless. Watch the news any day. There's economic reasons for concern, feels kind of hopeless. There's political reasons for concern, feels hopeless. There's social reasons for concern that feels hopeless. People are fighting all around us. The world feels more divided than ever. There's plenty of reasons to feel hope. Less. Wall Street Journal and the uh, University of Chicago partnered together for a study. And the results came back this week. It said this. It said a record 78% of people surveyed didn't think their children's generation will live better than their own, up from 67% in 2019. Does that feel hopeless to anybody? I want you to listen to me. In a world characterized by hopelessness, the church who has the message of Jesus, should throw hope around like confetti, freely available, freely given. We should give it out like oxygen to oxygen-deprived souls. It should be a joy for us to share hope. One of the joys and one of the the challenges in my line of work is I get the best moments with people and I get their worst moments. I get their weddings, I get to do weddings, I get to be like two feet away from people when I'm like, you may now kiss the bride. And they're like kissing, there's like drool chains hanging between them. I see it all. Best moments. I get to visit babies born in the hospital, and I love it. And I've done some funerals that would take your breath away. Hard ones. Little caskets. That there should never be baby caskets. And parents should never bury their kids. Elderly parents shouldn't bury their adult children. But that's the way the world seems to work. And I've done these. And here's the thing I've known, and I know there's some pastors and some preachers in the room today. Here's what I know. There's a stark difference between doing a funeral for a believer and for an unbeliever. You do a funeral for an unbeliever and people just stare at you, hopeless. 
dying inside, facing eternity. But I've done some funerals for some believers that felt like a party, felt like a church service, felt, felt, like, felt like we were having a celebration instead of a morning service. Paul was writing to a church in a little place called Thessalonica one time. And he said this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, brothers and sisters, brothers from different mothers, sisters from different misters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind. And here's the phrase, who have no hope. So much of mankind walks through this life, eyes astigmatized unable to see, unable to have clarity, unable to dream, unable to remember the faithfulness of God, just in the middle of their story, hopelessly. And when you've got Jesus, you have hope. C.S. Lewis said, and I'm gonna paraphrase, he said, I'm convinced that when I die, I won't know for several months because the way scripture talks about death for a believer is that this life ends, you exhale your last breath here and your next inhale is in the presence of God. Where there's no mourning, no death, no pain, no crying. We have hope in a dark world. How incredible would it be if this place was a beacon of hope, a lighthouse, into the darkness of our world. Let's throw it around like confetti and let's celebrate when people experience the hope we have. Here's the weird sentence again. We are high on our hope dealing party throwers. This one's my favorite. Here's the reason this one's my favorite. Luke chapter 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Luke 15 starts with two verses. It says that Jesus is teaching and some Pharisees, these religious elite, and sinners are gathered around. When it talks about sinners, in some translations of the Bible, it puts a single quote around it, meaning this word is a bigger word than just the word sinners. Like everyone's a sinner. This is like the worst of humanity. These are like child molesters, pedophiles, murderers, like the worst of the worst, Philadelphia Eagles fans, like just the worst of humanity. It's all the worst of the worst. And they're all gathered around Jesus, and here's what I love. People who are nothing like Jesus, you ready for this? They like Jesus. People who are nothing like him liked him, and I think you should do a self-audit. Are the people in your life who are nothing like Jesus, do they like you? If they don't, you should probably examine yourself. A lot of Christians walk through this world and we're like, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Tell your face, like, be happy, be joyful. So Jesus is teaching, and there's these people who are nothing like him, but they, they like him, and it's the religious leaders who are offended that these people are near him. And then Jesus tells three stories, and here's why this matters to me. The three stories take all of Luke chapter 15, and all three stories have the same point. We've got the life of the greatest person to ever live, God in flesh, steps into the world, and Luke takes one whole chapter to tell three stories that have the same point. It must mean that the point matters. First story is about a shepherd, something you totally identify with. Shepherd has 100 sheep, and one day he's out shepherding, doing his thing, and he loses one. I'm going to be honest with you, I don't care about sheep. I wouldn't care about one if I still have 99, 
But the shepherd's good, and he takes off looking high and low, and he finds it. And when he finds it, he throws that fluffy sheep on his back, and he comes back into town, and he says, celebrate with me. The sheep I lost is found. And then Jesus stops the story, flips the story upside down, and he gives us a heavenly understanding. He says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Ooh, heaven throws a party. And then he tells another story. He says, there's a lady who has 10 silver coins. We don't know what the 10 silver coins mean. Um, a lot of people think it would be the equivalent of an engagement ring. And it says that she loses one of her 10 coins. He says, wouldn't she flip her house upside down, sweeping every corner, using a candle to light the darkness to find the coin? And when she finds the coin, she gathers her friends and throws a party because the coin she lost is now found. Story ends, he flips it upside down. He says, in the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing, partying in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then if people were like, Jesus, what's your point? I don't care about sheep and I don't care about coins. What's your point? He says, okay, there's a dad. He has two sons. And one of his sons says to him, dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, then I could have half of everything and I could finally start my life. And the father does the unimaginable, divides his assets and gives one of his sons half of his estate. The son goes, if you know the party, he spends everything, lives a wild, lavish lifestyle. And when the money runs out, all of his friends, who he thought were his friends, they leave. He finds himself at rock bottom. He's a Jewish boy who finds himself feeding pigs. These are animals so unclean that he can't eat them or touch them, and now he's feeding them. He's at rock bottom, and he realizes that his father's servants have it better than he does. And so he says to himself, here's what I'll do. I'll go back to my dad. I'll humble myself. And I'll tell him these three things. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Number two, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Number three, so make me like one of your hired men. The son rehearses the speech, and he walks towards his dad. And I love the story. Because as he gets close to his father's house, off in the distance, there stands on the front porch of his house, the father. And he sees his son and he's so excited that he hikes up his robe and he takes off running towards his son. Why does this matter? In ancient Jewish world, like Jewish men would never run to someone. Because to run to someone assumes that they're more important than me. Father would never run to his son. But this was his boy. He loved his son. He runs to him, and the, the son's like, dad, 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 listen, listen. Okay, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worth. The father stops him. So, sh 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 stop, stop, stop. And the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Come on, filet for everybody, T-bones for everybody, porterhouse for everybody, New York strip for me, medium rare. Let's go. He says, for this son of mine was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. They threw a party. The story ended here. Beautiful story. Son comes home. The story goes on that says there was a second son. And while that party was happening, he stood on the outside of the party, arms folded in anger, seething in his rage. Father comes out and tries to reason with him. And why would you throw a party for him? He left, he wasted all the money, and I've been here the whole time. And the dad says, son, you've been with me always, but he, my other son, I thought he was dead, but he's actually alive. So of course, we're gonna celebrate. 
in every church in America, seated in the seats, seated in the rows, seated in the pews, are people who at one point were like the first son, far from God, desperately needing his saving grace. Scripture says over and over and over again that when they made a decision to follow Jesus, heaven threw a party. But then I think something happens. Just my observation, but over time, if we're not careful, we drift from being the first son, the one that needed rescuing, towards becoming the second. Why would we throw a party for them? I've been so faithful. I've been serving, I've been giving, I've been faithful. Why would we celebrate someone else when it's me that deserves it all? Listen to me. This story isn't even really about you. Let me tell you who it's about. This story is called the story of the prodigal son. Do you know what the word prodigal means? I think a lot of us think it means wayward or someone who's like wandered far away. Prodigal means wastefully extravagant. Who's the prodigal in the story? It's not the son. It's the father who is wastefully extravagant with his love. He doesn't have to treat his son like that. And he welcomes him with open arms, all of his blessing, and a party in his honor. This is the reason baptism Sundays are a big flipping deal around here. This is the reason that I go home on baptism Sundays with no voice because I sit right there and I scream my guts out. Then I come up here and try to preach three services. I'm, I'm gonna give it everything I've got, but I'm gonna join heaven. And if heaven's celebrating a person who was once far from God who's back home, we better join with heaven. So may we never stop celebrating. May we never forget the words to the famous song, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. May we never forget that we were once separated from God and he found us. I'll give you one extra story. I didn't give the first two services five years ago. My family was on a cruise. First time we've ever done a cruise as a family. My son Gavin was probably about seven years old at the time. Cruise ships are deceptively big. We had never been on one and we had, we had rules. We stay together as a family. Whenever we go, we go together, that kind of a thing. And one time we got off an elevator and we were walking around somewhere and we turned around and I did a quick head count and I was missing one. It was Gavin. Didn't know where he was. He was about seven years old. I had no idea where he was. We took off running where we had come from and he wasn't there. Imagine. Imagine if as I was running, looking for my son who was lost, I found someone who worked on the cruise ship and I said, have you seen my son? He's about this tall, looks just like me, super handsome. Thanks so much for noticing. I just, I can't find him. And imagine they said, well, good luck. Thoughts and prayers. And they didn't help me. What would I do? I'd probably find their room and burn it to the ground is what I would do. Okay, imagine I lose my son and I find an employee and I say, I lost my son. And she gets on the intercom and says, we've lost a child. Everybody look, here's how tall he is. Here's what he's wearing, let's find him. And she takes off running and helps me. Say she finds my son and brings him to me. What will I do for her in that moment? I'll give her anything I have. My car, my house, all those are replaceable. The only thing in my life that isn't replaceable is my family. 
What do you think God feels when he looks down from heaven and he sees some churches sitting around saying, we should do something? Good luck. Thoughts and prayers. What do you think God does for churches like Access? When he peers over the precipice of heaven and he sees churches like us who say, we'll do anything. Easter's coming, sure we'll invite, easy. Yeah, we'll bring someone. It cost me almost nothing. Maybe a hit on my reputation, but heaven and hell are realities and we're playing for keeps. What do you think God does for those churches? He pours his blessing out on them. That's the reason we're sitting in a miracle. That's the reason we keep running out of seats. That's the reason this is a 12 o'clock service and technically by most standards, it's actually too full for 12 o'clock service. When it's all said and done, here's who we are. We are access, we are high honor, hope dealing party throwers. How does Lakeland look more like heaven when a church gets committed to being high honor, hope dealing, party throwers. When do we stop getting to do all of this? When Lakeland looks like heaven and everyone around us is a high honor, hope dealing party thrower. How incredible would it be if all of us just made this decision that we won't stop. We're here for good until Lakeland looks like heaven. Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me all across this room? Let's pray. God, we ask you to give us courage today. This is one of those messages that's so easy to talk about and it is so hard to live out. God, help us, first of all, to be on mission with you, to care about what you care about. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done in and on earth as it is in heaven. God, I pray that as a result of today, Lakeland will look a little bit more like heaven every single day. Give us the courage to be high honor. We always want to honor you. May your presence never leave us because we fail to honor you. And may we honor other people around us. Thank you for that, God. God, may we toss around hope like confetti. May this church be a beacon of light in an increasingly dark world. And God, may we never stop celebrating. If heaven throws a party, may we be so loud that we leave with sore voices from screaming because we never forgot what it was like when we were once the one who was lost and a party was thrown for us because we're found. Thank you for it, God. In 